You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. You know, I think the word productivity being kind of the word for the whole genre, the whole kind of area that people are interested in is a little bit wrong because really what you want is effectiveness, right? You could be productive, you know, based on some metrics, but it's like, are you getting what you want reliably, right? So for me, what it is to be productive is just like reliable effectiveness. You know, how do you be effective kind of on demand? Not good some days, bad other days, but how do you reliably be good? That was Sebastian Marshall co-founder and CEO of Ultra Working, a company building technology to help people hit flow states and peak performance more often in their work. In today's conversation, we jam about what peak performance actually means. It's not what many people think, and how the path to peak performance often requires focusing on areas outside of your work. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Joining me today, I'm always really excited to jam with another person that's focused on productivity and peak performance and how we get work done because we bring such different perspectives to it. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, very, very excited. Important topic, obviously. So people know where you're coming from here. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you got into productivity and peak performance as a business um, and really what some of your like one, two or three really um, important foci are in that work. Yeah, for sure. So my co-founder, Kai Zhao, and I Uh, We've known each other for 11 years, and we did a lot of projects together in technology, in development. We wrote a book together. We did a lot of work in nonprofit and education together, uh, hosting some programs at uh, at MIT's Global Startup Lab and at the University of Chicago, Um, worked on 100% volunteer nonprofit for a while. And we were both interested in different aspects of the research into peak performance. And we study everything. Like, what is fatigue? So obviously, there's like the biochemical aspects of fatigue, but like the mental aspects of fatigue. When you get bored, why do you get bored? Right? And things like that. And Kai's very into like children's development and learning. I'm very into like, how does elite athletics happen? How do people train at the elite level for sports or the elite military units? We study like organizations. You know, there can be two organizations doing the exact same thing. Right. They're both an investment bank. They're both a car company. They're both uh, a tech company making consumer focused tech. And, and like some of them would just run way better. And even with like very similar type of people working there. So like, huh, what's up with that? Different people are doing different things. And, you know, when you're dealing with physical stuff, you know, if somebody's making, you know, tables out of wood, you know, you can see. All right. How's the quality on these tables and how many tables did we make today? When you're doing knowledge work, it's it's kind of hard to say. You know, you can if you're a writer, you could do word count, but like how's the quality on those words, right? A little bit harder to measure, a little bit harder to manage, and yet there's a difference, and we can kind of see that. So we got very, very interested in like, okay, how do we have peak performance more often? How do we have things happen really reliably? You asked me what the three kind of core focuses, foci, um, are in what we do, and you know, I'd, I'd say the first thing is a lot of times people say, hey, you're, you're in a productivity or productivity guy. And well, that's true. But, you know, I think the word productivity being kind of the word for the whole genre, the whole kind of area that people are interested in is a little bit wrong. 
because really what you want is effectiveness, right? You could be productive, you know, based on some metrics, but it's like, are you getting what you want reliably, right? So for me, what it is to be productive is just like reliable effectiveness. You know, how do you be effective kind of on demand, not good some days, bad other days, but how do you reliably be good? So that's the first one is just thinking about like kind of a reliable, uh, you know, being able to reliably produce the results you want to produce in your life. And that can be, you know, in your, your core work, if you're, you know, building a business that could be related to product development or revenue or hiring or whatever. Um, but that's also like, you know, how do you have a nice civic group? How do you do stuff in the nonprofit world? If you're on a intramural sports team where you're having good practices and, and competing well and setting up well for the games and playing well, you know, it's, uh, I don't see a hard divide between work and life. Then the second thing, you know, after just a general effectiveness is flow states magical. You know, Professor uh, Shikzet Mihaly, if I'm saying that correctly, from MIT, he wrote a great book about that called Flow. Um, for some people, that's really rare and precious. They don't get inspired and they don't have those like time disappears. The work just flows. You don't have any of that kind of self-narrative, overthinking, procrastinating, thrashing, just like work just happens and it feels great. So how do we drop in a flow state really, really often? And then the third thing that I think is is maybe not sexy but is really, really important is how do you recover really rapidly when things go wrong, right? Because like things go wrong. So like a lot of people build their productivity, their effectiveness, their habits, their systems, they build them with the assumption that it'll work well in a good week, right? So they build stuff to like perform well in their good weeks, but bad weeks happen. You know, you come down ill, maybe your parents get ill and you got to help them out or your kids or uh, you know, or just something crazy happens. Maybe a lot of opportunity comes up, right? Maybe you're a CEO and, uh, you know, there's like a couple of deals closing at the same time. They're both huge and it's crazy, right? So how do you perform and get back to a baseline of performance and then get back to really super thriving after a crazy period? So I think if you can get those down, just a general effectiveness, get in a flow state really often, and then rapidly recover and rebuild um, if and when things get crazy or go wrong, because things get crazy and go wrong from time to time, then I think you're having a pretty good life. That's fantastic. So many different ways that we can go with this. Um, I'm going to tag in on the last one, though, because I've been thinking a lot about um, fragile productivity systems. And by fragile, I mean the ones that like we build and we tweak them so much that when we're in that context or when that workflow can work, then it's great. But when we're slightly off, it doesn't work at all. And so it's brittle in that way. It's like so fragility and anti, you know, and and um, flexibility. I'm sort of thinking about um Talib's anti-fragile at the same time, right? And so it seems like we have to be in these sort of dual states because on the one hand, optimizing your productivity and your workflow really does help you get more things done because it lowers decision fatigue. It lower, you know, it helps you drop into flow states and so on. And, you know, all the great things that we, we talked about there, but over-reliance on that can also be a setback because as you mentioned, like you wake up one morning, three hours later, you don't get to do your morning routine or you don't get to do something like that. And then you're off and you can't recover because you've, you've gotten, you know, fragile or you've gotten sort of rigid in the way that you go about things. And so I know you were talking about, um, maybe at the more at the higher level when there are a bunch of projects colliding, but I think there's also just when your context doesn't match the system that you've built to do reliable work in that domain. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And you know, a lot of people have these kind of boom and bust 
cycles in their lives. And I don't think that entirely ever goes away. I think it's it's natural and healthy to some extent that, you know, when things are going really well, you start to do more stuff and expand a little bit. And, you know, at some point you hit a breaking point and then maybe you're up really late shipping something and then you wake up a little later than normal, you know, meditate or get your breakfast correct or whatever you're used to doing, plan out the day. And yeah, how do you how do you run with that is it's an important question. I think this doesn't occur as silly as this sounds. I think this doesn't occur to a lot of people like I think, you, you know, so if I can get super abstract, pardon me, and then we can get it. We can get really concrete and give details. Oh, we can handle the abstract. Trust me. Oh, we're going super abstract, right? I, I think a lot of people don't model the base rates, like statistical base rates out in the world, right? Like mm-hmm. how, how many times are you going to get ill this year, right? Well, like if you're normal, you're going to get a cold as often as people get. What's that, like one and a half times a year? And, you know, if, if you're like super healthy and you only get ill once every three years or something, then that's your rate. And if it's a little more for you, you know, whatever, you live in a polluted city or something, then it's a little higher. But, you know, I think a lot of people ignore the fact that like things go wrong, right? So like top performer in the world, like how often do their mornings get busted up? And the answer is not zero. Actually, there's a, a book that I read by an Olympic coach and uh, I worked with a lot of different Olympians that performed in different ways. And, and he said something really fascinating. He said that, you know, to perform at an Olympic level, you need to be giving about 80% of what you're capable of every single day. And his definition, he said, look, it's not 110%. It's not 110% because like 100% is like dying on the finish line of the race, right? 100% is what you're biologically capable of and like bad things happen as you get near 100. So you want to be at 80. Don't believe this 110 thing. Like most people only train at 40 to 60%. So they feel like they're giving 110 when they give 70 or 80. But it's actually 80% of your biological limits you want to give. You should try to hit that every day. But Olympic level performance is hitting that about 25 days out of 30. Even top performers trying to train at the best possible levels are screwing up more than once a week on their training protocols, on giving their most and training as, as well as possible. Right. And that doesn't mean you give yourself a pass and you're like, well, all right, I can, I can blow off five days this month. That's a good recipe for blowing off more than five days. Right. But I think that's really fascinating that like metal in the Olympics level performance is, is 25 out of 30 at 80%. Like that's fascinating. I think a lot of people don't take that into account when they're designing their systems and they're like getting bummed out and getting into a downward spiral when they have a day that goes wrong. Like, Oh no, I lost it. I'll never be back again. And it's like, look, that's part of the game. That's like, like Phelps, Michael Phelps is having bad days. Like Elon Musk is having bad days and they're probably having five or seven of them a month, uh, plus or minus a little bit. Right. So you got to be ready for that and you got to be able to get back on the horse and start riding really quickly after one of those bad days and not get into a downward spiral. So you got to build your stuff accordingly. Know that that's going to happen. Know that that happens to the best people in the world. You know, kind of build your stuff and set your mentality for that and make the adjustments and, and be ready to make the adjustments. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've written a post called, uh, I'm probably going to screw up the name of it because we may have changed it, but it, it was originally called um, Work at 100% Focus at 80% of Your Capacity. Uh, mm. Because what we do is we assume that focus and capacity are the same thing. They're not. They're not the same thing. You can be 100% focused uh, but still only planning and using against that 80%. And I actually got this from a weird place from um, my background in logistics, right? You never plan 100% of your work, of your equipment or 100% of your stuff to go right. Like, so if I'm a, if I'm a uh, battalion um, transportation officer and I've got 100 trucks, I never assume that I'm going to have 100 trucks on the road at any given time. 
it's not going to happen because they're going to be in maintenance. They're going to be whatever, right? It's about 80%, actually. Um, 80, 85%, depending upon the efficiency of your maintenance crews. Um, and you build your entire model often off of that because, again, all it takes, especially in the military context, all it takes is one of your convoys to go through an ambush. And if you planned 100%, you then can't backfill. You then have no room to maneuver um, to deliver supplies and then recover from that. So it's always, you know, that 20 percent. I was like thinking about that from a productivity perspective because so many people crash into the day and they think, you know, standard sort of 40 hours, which is total BS in first place. Right. But they're like I've got eight hours today, so I need to plan my work as if I'm going to do eight hours of, you know, full utilization work. And then something happens, something small happens, like, you know, going to the bathroom. And most people don't plan on the fact that you go to bathrooms is the baseline, right? There's a certain amount of time you spend in the bathroom every day. It rarely shows up on people's schedules. However, when we're planning our day, like until you figure out what your true utilization is going to be, maybe plan against 80% of that baseline, you know, or maybe plan a little bit more and build that slack in your system without, and here's the trick, right? Because there's also the sort of Parkinson's law, which can be funny, but there's also this idea that like, if I have that extra time, I'll use it. Whereas if I didn't have that extra time, I wouldn't. So there's, again, I think so much of this is sitting in that tension between having, between knowing the baseline, knowing how much slack you need, but not planning against using that slack. So just the slack is there when you need it and not sort of, you know, squandered away. Yeah, there's there's some excellent there's some excellent materials on this uh, by a uh, Israeli physicist named Eli Goldret who took a physics approach to optimizing factories, right? So he got into to factory optimization. He wrote some great books on it. The the most famous one's called The Goal, and literally everyone I know that's read it uh, loves it a lot. And I'll also say this: the eighty percent mark. Um, requires everybody to be really good at what they do, right? And, you know, and the, and the Army's really good at logistics, right? Really, 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 really good. Actually, the whole U.S. federal government is really good at what it does. And I know there's like a, you know, everybody kind of complains about the government, but actually if you look into American civil service, um, the American armed forces, there's never been a country as large and as diverse as the United States that's as well run. Never. There's like small countries, that are well run, right? Maybe, maybe better, you know, but that's a different game. And then there's countries that are more kind of homogenous that don't have different regions, different climates, different industries, right? So if your country's all kind of built around like a couple of industries and the population's all really similar people, all really similar goals, a little easier, right? So, you know, Japan, I would say is a little more homogenous than the United States, for instance, right? So, you know, among, uh, you know, if you're just starting out, you, you might look to be 40 to 60% utilized, right? Um, you know, in terms of like pre-planned things. But as you say, yeah, the tension on that and, and a lot of creative people go in this direction is that if they have extra time, they'll just burn it and goof off, which is bad, right? So a lot of people put themselves under deadline pressure to get their performance up, right? So as much as possible, if you can slot in hyper-focused, shipping things, getting them done early, right? And then kind of the slack is at the end, um, that can go a long way. And, you know, the first concrete recommendation that I'd make, I think a lot of times people stack up one hard thing after another hard thing. I, I found a lot, a surprising amount of gain when somebody has a project that they want to get to, that they really like, I, I don't know, like, let's say somebody makes like homemade chocolates or something for their family, but they're like, I don't really have time to do that. I'm building my business or whatever. You can say to yourself, all right, 
I'm going to get through all this accounting, taxation. I'm going to get all that current. I'm going to do this and that business stuff. And if I get that done early enough, then I'm going to go bake up a batch of these chocolates for the family and put them in the nice packaging and whatever, your family chocolate thing, whatever. So if there's something you've been wanting to do that feels kind of luxurious or indulgent that you have after the hard work, you know, that's actually a very nice combo that people often sprint those through because then you realize tangibly that if you're messing around on Snapchat or playing games or doing whatever on the internet instead of your work, then you're actually trading off across the cool family activity of baking up the chocolates or, or whatever this thing that you like to do is. So a lot of times people stack a hard thing after a hard thing. So they're like, oh, if I get through this faster, I'm just onto this other thing that's hard, right? So, you know, kind of interspersing after one major milestone that's like four to six hours, that's kind of hard. Like as soon as that's done, I'm going to go get on this thing I really like. I'm going to go you know, research which golf courses I'd play on this upcoming trip, or I'm going to book these travel logistics and check out all these Airbnbs that I think is super cool, or I'm going to do some baking as a family, or, you know, I'm going to refine my mixed martial arts training plans, whatever. Um, you know, whenever you have an enjoyable thing that feels almost slightly luxurious, the kind of thing you'll put off because you're quote unquote busy right after the hard thing, then I find people often will sprint through the hard thing to get to the thing they want to do that's really pleasurable and enjoyable waiting on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. I call those sugar tasks. Right. Those things that like you get to do after you do everything. So we're talking on the same thing. I think where you were going to go on that, um, but you didn't. And I, I completely see why, because um, that's just one thing. The other thing is um, right at this point, I'm really at the point where I'm telling people to start planning on transitions between projects, especially major projects. Right. Because all too often what we do as we finish that project, I wrote about this in the last chapter of my forthcoming book. So um, the book is called Start Finishing. You guys will hear about it more and more as we go along. But, um, you know, we do one big project and then like we slide in, we just barely get it done, but we stack behind that another big project and we don't give that transition time. But when you really look at peak performance, you look at athletes, you look across the board, there's always like a championship and then like something afterwards where they can cool down and go into off season and they just have this transition project. Or if you're talking to the military sort of thing, you don't go campaign to campaign to campaign. You campaign, reset, go back to garrison, chill a little bit, campaign, so on and so forth. Because otherwise what you end up doing is just being on the somewhere on the edge of burnout, right? You're either pushing through that burnout, which um, is not good because it leads to even worse, or you're just always teetering in that balance, Um so just learning to have those transitions between major projects, maybe you fill them exactly with, as Sebastian said, with those things you've been meaning to get to. And maybe that's the time where like you, you know, in the middle of the afternoon on the Thursday after you've completed a project, maybe that's when you can decide to go out and work on the garden. Or maybe that's when you can decide to go see a matinee or something like that, just to build that transition time. So it's not just, you know, crank, 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 crank until you crash, um, because that's the inevitable, that, that's where that bus goes if you continue along it. Yeah, totally. And, you know, one thing that we started doing, and it was transformational for us, is we don't consider uh, a project complete once it's shipped, released, launched, whatever. We actually schedule time on the back end of it, anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, to analyze everything that what, what went well and, and what could have been better and build more checklists, take notes on the stuff that worked. And we actually build that in a project time, right? So if the launch date on some something is, is May 15th, then, you know, we might say that that project is closed on May 22nd and we give ourselves seven days. Maybe we're just chilling out for a day or two if it was, if it was kind of hard to hit the May 15th launch or whatever it was. But then, 
giving ourselves a week to say, hey, a couple parts of this went really well, but let's checklist out this one thing that had like 30 little steps to make sure that's easier next time. Let's do some better documentation on it. Let's think about, hey, this unexpected good thing happened. Let's build that into our process and do that every single time um, and build some checklists and spreadsheets around that, things like that. Just the act of scheduling it and giving yourself a week uh, to, to review, even if it's very informal and personal, maybe it's a couple of days and you can just hit up a cafe with no internet and just take out a physical notebook and journal a little bit what went well, what I liked, did I have any thoughts, any reflections, bit of a game changer as opposed to going from one thing that's on fire and crazy and then it ends and then just on to the next thing right away. So you build that time and space in and, and if you're ever going to do the same type of work you did again, it really bears reflecting and introspecting a little bit on, on what went well and how you can make it level up even more next time. Yeah, and, and during the same process, do what I call cat time, clean up archive and trash. Right. Mm. Because as you're working through a project, you know, you're going to make a mess because the creative process is messy. There's going to be files. There are going to be books. There are going to be papers. There's going to be just the detritus of, of creative mayhem happening. And that's normal. Right. Um, and, you know, while you might have your daily condo or while you might have your daily sort of cleanup practice, there's sort of meta level things like I'll, I'll just sink in here like file names. They're the worst. Right. Which version is it if you're still playing the version game or which document is where did all the Google Docs end up in the right place? Does all of that work that it takes, you know, or all that sort of activity that it takes to get something done isn't always organized. But during this transition period is where you can do that cleanup, archive and trash. And you can go through the physical stuff in your space, right? Maybe it's time to clean up the shop. If you're making something in the world, you probably have scraps, you have whatever around you that needs to go somewhere. Um, you've got this sort of, you know, archive it, mean putting stuff back, figuring out what goes, and you just get rid of some stuff. But on the digital level, it's the same thing. Clean it up, archive it, trash it, because if you don't do it then – What's going to happen is right when you're in the middle of that next project, that's going to become one of those things that seats or that saps against, you know, your utilization because the printer is going to break or, or the book you need is going to be on this teetering stack and you grab it and then the whole stack falls down or all the other things that happen. You know, I don't have to go through all of them, but those things are going to happen either at the worst moment. Or it's a moment that can be preventable. And so this is also during that time. And I think it does two things, actually. The first thing that it does is it sets you up for the next project. The second thing that it does is it creates, um, especially if you're doing some physical cat time, it allows you to re-recruit your body and let your body catch up to the emotional process that you've just gone through, especially if you've shipped something really important. Like, I don't think we oftentimes think about how much... Um, our body absorbs that emotion. It absorbs the stress. It does all of that. And if you think it, you know, you can go through a six to nine month project carrying all of that and have two days off and jump into the next thing, it's like, you know, we would never think about if we were thinking it in, on the physical domain, we wouldn't be like, you know what? You've been on a nine month marathon. You just need two days to recover from that. You'll be fine. That's not the way it works, right? Um, and so it allows us to, um, you know, clean up our area around us. But at the same time, it allows us to do some of that post-project shipping or completion integration that I think is a missing piece. Um, and again, we just end up in the end not doing our best work because we're just sliding from thing to thing, not rested, haven't done our cat time, haven't done the after-action reviews, which is what you were talking about there, and just um, not really capturing that 1% gain thing, which I'm, I'm going to hand the 1% gain thing to you because I think I picked it up more from your website. We all, we productivity geeks talk about it a lot. Um, but 
Long well, before, story short. Before we talk about that, yeah, before we talk about that, I want to underline something you said that I think is really smart, right? About even around intellectual work, giving your body uh, and mind recovery. You know, like again, you go you go to a gym and you you do some some heavy deadlifts. You know, you're you're gonna be a little bit smoked afterwards. Your back and your legs are are gonna need some recovery. You wouldn't go lift the same amount the next day if you're anywhere near your maxes, right? On your lifts, and that's just obvious. You know, you're literally breaking down proteins and and whatever, and then they're rebuilding, and your your body's rebuilding itself and getting stronger. Um, I was talking to. Uh, a gentleman who's really smart. Um, he's potentially going to join up at Ultraworking uh, when he finishes his comp sci degree. So we're uh, we're thinking of hiring him. And he was actually a national champion in in swimming um, in his home country. So he was a serious athlete in the pool, you know, whatever, like a couple dozen times a week or something, right? Like swimming a lot, training for like Olympic level stuff. And um, you know, we, we actually got got into it, and, and he had some very interesting thoughts around. You know, your brain, though, it's a lot less visible than the large muscles in your legs and your back when you're lifting, but you're actually using, um, you know, the various connections and, and, and neural pathways. And those are kind of uncoupling and getting wet, worn out when you're running really hard in your mind. And then obviously we sleep, but there's some sort of recovery and compilation time needed uh, to perform well. So I think sometimes people forget that your your brain has... Um, you know, some components of, of getting stronger and healing and, and remapping itself and whatever else. And, you know, giving yourself scheduled time where it's like, hey, that's the right thing to do. We're going to recover. We're going to get set up for the next one. We're going to clean up the physical environment, take any notes, observe the process. Yeah. You know, like just because you can't see, um, you know, the effects on your brain as much as you can other muscle groups. Uh, yeah, it's a marvelous thing and a great mental model and, and, and something people really should bear in mind. Absolutely. And, and that isn't that doesn't even go into the fact that so much of our nervous system is distributed away from our brain. Like if you look at the fascia system and how much our memory and how much we our being is tied up into places that are not just above our head. Those things, again, take time to integrate and rewire and reconnect and recharge. Right. So, you know, that I think that's the funny thing, because it turns out that a lot of the cognitive work that we do is actually done in places outside of our brain um, as far as when it comes to the energy, when it comes to what it takes to get it done. But I'm, sometimes this is a riff that I go on a lot, Sebastian, so you just got to bear with me. But sometimes we just treat our bodies like it's a head transportation vehicle, like its sole job is to get our head one place to the next. And if it does that, it's fine. Um, but the, you know, the body and everything is part of this greater matrix of effectiveness and energy that it takes to do your best work. And that's, I think, the funny thing. If, if people are paying attention, it's like, I thought you guys were talking about peak productivity, but you're talking a lot about like not being 100%. And I think that's the challenge is when we use words like peak productivity, people think that it's you know 100% utilization, and it's totally not. Well, exactly, right? Because if you imagine a road, you know, the cars go down that was at 100% utilization, nonstop, no quiet periods, a single accident, and it would never get clear, right? You need those times that that you're not at 100% um, to, to hit the highest level of, of throughput or output or however you measure it. Um, just to throw something out there, it's kind of advanced, but I think we're both into it. Um, people, sh I think people should probably do a little bit of research into biochemistry and like, you know, with the internet, 
you know, with the internet, you don't need to go study organic chemistry, you know, like, like doctors would study or whatever, but you know, you can look up something like the enteric nervous system, right. Which is, um, a big part of your nervous system that's not in your brain. And that's that, that more, um, you know, relates with your digestive tracts and it's why different food, um, can make you feel different ways and, and, and how that relates to productivity. Most people just have never looked it up. Like look up the Wikipedia on enteric nervous system. It's interesting. It's, it's there. It's in your body. Um, a lot of people don't look up the mechanisms of action of caffeine, which is an adenosine antagonist, right? And like, what exactly is that doing? The substance that we're consuming, what exactly is that doing? You know, uh, why is sugar, you know, fructose and sucrose um, different from other type of carbohydrates like glucose? It, you know, you can look this stuff up and it's, it's a long-term learning process. It's not something to get your mind around right away. But I feel like even dabbling in a little bit, because like, that's what you are. You're like a body, right? You know, and, and, you know, you've got your whole self as, as part of that in your mind. But yeah, like you said, a lot of people see it as kind of just like a vehicle, um, for getting around as opposed to like a core essential part of what they are. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people know more about how their cars work than how their body works. Right. So it's, it's worth some background research. Google mechanism of action of caffeine. Like you'll get it figured out pretty quickly. It's not that hard. Right. And um, where it gets really complicated is a lot of times your body's repurposing different different hormones and different chemical substances. So something might make you really alert in one area, but it might make you irate in another area. Right. Because it's, you know, the same sorts of signals and hormones are being used um, in your muscles and in your brain and other parts of your body and whatever else. You start to learn about a little bit about this stuff pretty advanced. I don't think we need to go super deep into this unless you had any low hanging fruit there. But uh, let me just put out a warm and hearty recommendation for just background learning. Googling mechanism of action of caffeine is not a bad place to start. Just like read a couple things on it. It'll take a half an hour. You'll be a little smarter forever. Well, you'll be a little smarter forever. But I think, again, when we're talking about productivity, because and I know you know, I wrote down when you were talking about sort of how productivity gets lumped over this meta area of, you know, work performance and things like that that we're talking about. But so often we're focusing, I believe, on the wrong things in the sense that, you know, it's easier to figure out how to use a new app or whatever that is. And we think that the solution is an app. But before we even get to the app, we're over consuming caffeine. And we literally can't think as well as we should be able to, or we can't focus, or it makes us irritable, or it makes us distracted. And that's the sort of area under those sort of systems area that's creating more problems. And I think in the work I've done with people, to be honest, one of the reasons why we don't pay more attention to this body stuff is because the change there can be a lot harder, right? Um if our car is broken, we take it to the mechanic, we get it fixed, we change, you know, we change the fuel, you know, we, we have these sort of easy things. But if, like you start talking about people about changing a habit away from sort of three cups of caffeine to maybe one cup of tea because the caffeine distribution in that particular substance is longer over the period of time. So they're not as wired, but they're still alert. That presents a behavior change and sometimes a fundamental trigger or a fundamental anchored behavior change, which is really, really hard for people, um, is why we can't, why it seems so much harder to get rid of gluten, you know, so on and so forth. Right. So I think that's just for my take, that's part of the reason why we don't want to go there is because we realize at a certain point that making those changes are going to be harder, um, in the short term, even though they pay off more in the long term. Allow me to challenge what you just said. Like, Please do. I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I'm in agreement, but allow me to just 
you know, devil's advocate over mm-hmm. here. What if it's not hard and people just think it's hard? Well, it's it's exactly the case, right? It's it doesn't matter whether it's hard or not. It's like what looks at our behavior change models is our perception of how difficult it's going to be. Um, and so, yeah, it seems harder in the moment, and that's enough of a barrier for people. Um, a lot of the work that you, you and I both do is trying to not trying to convince, but just showing alternative ways of doing things that, if you accept that it doesn't have to be harder can actually make things a lot better. But that perception, because emotion and beliefs drive action more so than facts, I think that's where people get stuck. You know, so I'd like to draw a distinction. This was, uh, at the risk of being hyped, this was life-changing for me, right? Mm -hmm. I drew a distinction at one point, and I I think everybody would do well to think about this. I drew a distinction at one point between kind of the meta skill of behavior change and the particular behavior change you want, right? So uh, to make it really concrete, right? A lot of times people say, I want to clean up my diet. And that usually means eating more of something and eating less of something else, right? You know, you're going to consume more of this, less of that. You know, that's the basics of it. I think a lot of times when people want to change their diet, they, they start by kind of trying to quit whatever they enjoy the most. They're like, you know, I you know, I'm I'm eating too many donuts. I love the Krispy Kreme donuts, but like, I really, I'm eating too many donuts. So I should quit the donuts. I actually did something. And this must've started, I don't know, three, four years ago. Now that was a game changer for me, which is one day I was eating some pastries, you know, like pastries, croissant, Danish, whatever. And Mm -hmm. for me personally, I'm not into pastries at all. If like they didn't exist, I wouldn't invent them. I wouldn't buy them. I don't really like them. Actually, every time I wind up eating one, I kind of feel dumb because I just don't like it. Some people do, but I don't. Right. And so I said, why do I ever eat this? Like, why, why do I ever eat a pastry? Right. And it's just because like, well, it's around and whatever. <laughs> so what I did was very slowly, once every like two or three months, I would ask myself, what's my least favorite food that's bad for me that I eat ever? And I would quit it forever. So I've slowly eliminated whatever is the lowest thing on my list that I ever consume that's not good for me. And my favorite stuff I still have. Ice cream is number one for me. I like ice cream. When I want junk food, I want ice cream. Like always, right? That's my number Mm -hmm. one thing, overwhelmingly and consistently. So, you know, I said, I'll quit ice cream last. But I, you know, I went and I had my last pastry ever. Uh, I went to a nice place that had nice pastries. I had them. I took a photo of it. I said, I'm never eating pastries again. And for me, that was zero sacrifice. I don't even like pastries. It's kind of like every time I eat one, I'm like, why did, why did I do that? That was just stupid, right? Mm-hmm. And I just kind of gradually did that. Uh, potato chips, I was never into. Some people are. I'm not. Quit potato chips forever. Quit candy forever. Just never really like candy. But all the whole time, you know, I could be, I could be out, you know, speaking at a university, visiting company, whatever. They offer me some candy. They offer some junk or whatever. All I got to say to myself is like, hey, I got to wait a half an hour or an hour and I can drop by a convenience store and get an ice cream if I want. Right. So if I want sugar, fat, carbs, enjoyable calories, whatever, um, I just need to wait a few minutes. And why this was really good is it built up the meta skill of quitting and it separated out the meta skill of quitting from actually quitting the individual behaviors. So like two years into this, it was like a full two years of quitting something, not even on any schedule, just when I felt ready, every two, three, four months. Um, I said, you know, I don't really like bread. I think I'm ready to give bread up. And it'd been a couple years 
of building and reinforcing this work for me. So I did it super slowly. It's not something to dive into, but I had bread for the last time in my life a couple of years ago. I haven't had bread since then. That was a harder one. That was legit harder, but eventually that was the least favorite thing I was eating. So now I have a salad or I have some rice or, you know, if it's chipotle, I have a burrito bowl and tortillas count as bread, right? So no bread ever again. And so I eat a lot better. And every time I kind of wax something on the list, um, my diet just gets a little bit better gradually because that skill of quitting or adjusting a behavior or something, you don't have to start in the hardest thing, the thing you most don't want to do or don't want to give up or least want to do or whatever. You can start with like, what are dumb ways that I waste time that I don't even enjoy, right? A lot of people are like, you know, I don't know, what's, what's the cool video game right now, Fortnite? They're like, oh, I spend way too much time playing Fortnite. But they probably also spend a little bit of time searching, you know, like like going to websites they don't even really like that much, just out of habit. Just say like, okay, I'm I'm gonna you know figure out how to design it and how to quit and just never go check those out again. I'm gonna install something like Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator. It's a plugin that'll just uh, Facebook works as normal, but your newsfeed won't be there when you log in, right? So you have to go click on one of your friends if you want to see what they were up to, and then their their whole status things there, but you don't have the kind of fire hose from it. Right. So you can just gradually eliminate the stuff you don't like to build up the skill and setting up the systems around you, the behavior around it and things like that. Get good at that. Um, get good at those meta skills of that. And then after you've built up those skills of behavior change, um, of quitting activities, of promoting healthy activities, um, then gradually you can tackle harder and harder ones after you've built up more skill in it. And I don't think it has to be a torturous process. I love it. I, lo- I love it 100 percent. I've done similar things where I think. Part of the game, and it's sort of a Henry Ford, like in the, you know, I'm getting ahead in the time people waste. Um, That's a paraphrase. Um, But when we look at the general waste um, that we have in our life, and I'm not going to do the whole, like, stop watching a loss thing. Like, if you love loss, that's a Gary Vaynerchuk from back in the day, right? Like, it's like, you want to find time, stop watching a loss, right? Someone might really love lost. That might be their thing, right? Um, May may have a priority conflict, but maybe not that, right? I'm not going to call that waste, but everyone has some activity they do that's waste based upon their preferences and their priorities and just eliminating those in slow ways. So I would call what you're doing the slow quit method, right? Where you just, it's, it can be brilliant because you never feel like you had to wake up that day and like, man, I really, really wanted ice cream. And I had to use all my willpower not to do that because, um, you know, willpower tends to be, um, not as, infinite as we think, you know, there's a certain amount. Well, that's, that's rough. The the literature goes back and forth on this, but we know that when we use willpower in one domain, it's harder to use willpower in other domains. Um, so you get to that point where you're, you're not really using willpower because it's not something that you had to prevent yourself from doing anyways. You just have that to focus on other things. It's brilliant. I would say you can also, I, I think you could work into it the other way when people start talking about, say, diet or, or activity change. They go whole hog, like, I'm going to jump right into paleo. Well, maybe you just find a few areas in your current diet that you can sort of trim off. Or maybe you find the small things about paleo that you like and slowly introduce those, you know, 1% every, you know, every two weeks or every month. And eventually, after a year or two, you're paleo, but you never had to go through that paleo or whatever your diet thing is, right? Um, so we're talking about the 1% gain in a roundabout way, right? As I think that people try to get better too quickly. Now, if you're just starting something, um, switching back to work or you know tradi- traditional forms of capacity, like if you're just going out, to, going to the gym and you haven't gone in a long time, you're going to make some fast gains pretty quickly. 
but you're going to get to a point of diminishing, um, not diminishing returns, but you're going to get to the place where you're not gaining or losing as quickly as your body and sort of habits adapt to that. So, you know, if you're in that beginning stage, maybe it is one of those things where you can't expect a pretty significant um, delta in your previous um, output versus where you are now. But if you've been sort of honing that system for a while, learning to really be comfortable with that, that one to 3% sort of scenario can be really great. And as an aside, I was talking to somebody on a podcast about this. Like if you're an entrepreneur and you're just starting your businesses in the earlier days, you might be doubling your business every year. Of course, going from nothing to something and then something again, over again is easy. But what if we as an industry or we as a sort of a community really learn to embrace 10 to 15% profit, right? As opposed to, or 10, 10 to 15% growth, Either way, we can think about it, right? Um, as opposed to, it's got to be this epic thing all the time. Slide that in there. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I think you can be hardcore on about one thing at a time. Maybe like one and a half things, but that's even dangerous, right? So if you want to be like super hardcore, like I'm, you know, you're going to go from a standard, very, you know, Western style diet to paleo, you better be paying a lot of attention to that while you're getting that installed. So your point about willpower, I think if anything enters the level of conflict where like, I don't want to do this, but I should, right? And you're actually having the conflict. If that's a regular recurring routine thing, not like a once a year thing, but like a regular thing, you're eventually going to lose that battle. So if there's any behavior change you want to have stick permanently, you need to not get into conflicts ever. And you need to have the mix of habits, systems, rules, plans such that there is literally no conflict. Likewise, with any sort of internal systems around productivity, they've got to get down to basically about free to maintain. Like they've got to basically be free because if it's taking you, um, you know, one to three hours and you don't have a super complex life to reorganize your projects and have a projects list, then I would guarantee that at some point things are going to get crazy. It's going to get out of date. Then it's going to get even worse to go back and update it. And then you're going to run a month or two without your projects list, if you even pick it back up, right? So I think everything you do, you know, you can be hardcore on one thing at a time, right? So you could say, I'm going super hardcore optimizing everything for fitness, or I'm going to like super, like take a mindfulness approach to everything. I'm going to meditate a bunch of hours. I'm going to be aware the whole time. And, you know, just like, I'm going to be hardcore on that. Like you can be hardcore on one thing at a time. You'd be hardcore on growth in your business, right? Um, you'd be hardcore on one thing. Um, I think a lot of people try to be kind of like uh, casually hardcore, which is an oxymoron and doesn't work. Yeah. Like don't don't set hardcore goals and then don't take them very seriously. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's it's a recipe for being disappointed um, and burning out. Right. So you'd be hardcore on one thing at a time. But whatever else you're doing needs to become like free. Um, it, like if you're getting into a conflict, I don't want to do this, but I should like if that's still happening, then you need to keep designing um, and improving uh, kind of the way things are set up so that eventually goes away. Because if you're having a conflict, even if you're only losing 3% of the time, if you're winning the willpower battle 97% of the time, then you're, you're 30, 30 episodes of conflict away from, from breaking uh, your system breaking down. You know, uh, actually on average, it'll be 15, right? So, you know, if you're having a fight every single day to go do your morning routine, then you've probably got the wrong morning routine. Right. Because sooner or later, you know, whatever your 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 young son or daughter will be a little sick or something. So you're up with them at night or whatever. And then that's the day that it'll break down. It's a little harder than normal. And then, bam, you're off of it. So 
everything you design systemically, everything around your, your, your plans, your habits, everything like that, you can have one of them that you're paying a lot of attention to that you're on like a hawk and you're hardcore on. Everything else has got to be free and like not like easy and enjoyable, but like don't have to think about it. A conflict doesn't happen. Like I'm just there doing it right now, you know? So like if you if you commute to and from work on your bicycle, right, and there's no other way to get there, then you're probably going to bike home at the end of the day, you know, right? So there's no conflict there, right? But if it's like you got to book a session to go to this thing and I don't want to and, I, you know, right, then sooner or later you're going to not go to it. So if that's important, like keep designing and looking for things that, that get to close to free, if not outright free. I so love that on so many different levels. Um, I'm going to give a an and here in just a second. The other way that you can go about making something free or going about the sort of behavior change thing is make the cost of not doing it higher than the cost of doing it or the, or the reverse. Like if you do something and the cost of not doing it is higher, you can sort of min-max that. For instance, I'm currently working with a personal trainer. Um, I got four hours of sleep the other day. In any other context, I would not have gone to the gym. But the cost, the emotional and social cost of not going to the gym that day overrode my I don't want to go to the gym today sort of scenario. Um, and so it can be free or you can just game it so that the consequences of you not doing it make it such that um, even if you do have conflict, um, there's clearly a winner for you. The other thing that I'd say on this one, though, um, or this is the and bit. Where we get stuck is when we're tr- when we're rehabituating. That's oftentimes an uncomfortable process, cognitively, emotionally, socially, whatever the course may be. And so, when you're first trying something new, you're going to have the resistance, you're going to have the tension, you're going to have all of those types of things. And so, you have to be clear about whether this is just the discomfort or the tension of change, or whether this is sort of the comfort or discomfort or the comfort excuse me, discomfort or tension of being out of values and out of principles. Because if it's just change, you might have to stick with something long enough so that you rehabituate. And by that, we mean it then becomes that thing becomes the default versus your previous behavior. So for example, for a lot of athletes or for a lot of people who get into a routine and habituate going to the gym, not going to the gym is the thing that um, is verboten or is the thing that doesn't feel right, right? So their default really powers them in that way. And it becomes free However, as you're building up that habit, it's not free. And so you just kind of got to know, you know, how long are you going to stick with something until you can sort of see like, wait a second, I'm habituating. This is becoming my new normal. I can deal with it versus, man, I'm always and forever going to want a pastry and I'm not going to fight that for the rest of my life. Indeed. Yeah. Well said. You know, the, the time horizon, I'd love to hear what which ones you set. The way that I do that is I actually uh, do a pretty serious monthly planning. We've actually got a spreadsheet over it at, at Ultra Working, and we can we can link that up if people want to check it out. But it, it looks at like how did every single day of the last month go, and then what are the current opportunities, what are the current problems, how are the areas of your life going. But then at the end of that, I try to make some plans. And one thing that I do is I actually give a theme, like a name, to every single month, right? So. Basically, almost every single month, or or now it's been every single month for for a couple of years running, um, every single month will get a name or a theme on it, and I will practice kind of one core idea for a month, and it's like one thing each month, mm-hmm. and that'll be like that'll be the thing that I know that I'm anticipating some, you know, kind of homeostatic pressure of like okay, you know, if this month we're uh, you know, doing a few hours focused of this type of activity that I wasn't doing anything of the past month or doing it very erratically. Um, 
then that's it. Actually, this month, what, what I'm doing this month is I'm, uh, I'm aiming to do four hours of aversive or neglected work every single day. I'm actually pretty good at the big stuff, but it's little stuff. It's like paperwork and turning around contracts for um, new team members. We're hiring a lot, right? Like little things like that kind of just like pile up. They're, they're like admin. They don't fall under a major project. They don't necessarily have mature systems for them yet. You know, things like that. So I've been aiming to do four hours a day of every, every single day of that for this month. And that's like a bit of a shock to jump into doing four hours of administrative work every day when I was doing it kind of, you know, erratically in batches here and there before that. But every single day I've built, you know, my routines to kind of plan that out. What domain are those four hours going to come from? I plan that the night before. Um, then I look at my calendar and see where can I fit it on the calendar. And, you know, I, obviously I still stay on top of my my big work. You know, we do product development and growth and, and, you know, making sure our customers are really happy and doing a good job for them. But, you know, every single month, I think it's a pretty good opportunity. And it you know, just kind of fits naturally with the calendar turning over of like, hey, I'm going to give this about 30 days. And most things, if they haven't started to kind of kind of get over the hill and become a little less hard um, at the end of 30 days, then that, that might be uh, that might be a sign that you want to make adjustments. You don't want to stick with it forever. And I only out of stuff I try out like this. There might be like little supporting points on it. So there might be like five or six things tied into it. I only keep about one out of 10 things that I try. And, you know, when I was talking with some other people that are, are very much into productivity and systems and whatnot, seems to be a common hit rate. It's somewhere between 10 and 20% of things people try out, they stick with. So I think if somebody's ever tried to get on Trello or Asana or whatever, and it didn't, wasn't quite right for them or the way they were using it wasn't quite right, or they tried a certain morning routine or evening routine or meditation or a type of stretching or yoga or whatever, a lot of times people try things and they feel like a failure if it doesn't stick. Whereas among top performers, I know it's about a 10 to 20% rate, right? So if you try five things, maybe one of them you'll really like. For me, it's about one out of 10 things that I try, I really like, and then I stick with forever. So, you know, when I try new things, I'm actually not anticipating that I'll even carry them forth after 30 days. So I give them a shot for one month and then whatever I really, really like out of it, I keep. But if I don't really like it, it's like, hey, I gave it a month. I saw how it went. Yeah, so be it. On to the next thing. Yeah, I love it. I do. Usually it's about a monthly experiment on something. Um, and at this stage, my hit rate's a little bit higher because I've, I know sort of the metrics of experiments that work for me versus what don't. Um, especially if it's work related, if it's physical related, then I'm about one out of it, you know, one or two out of 10. Um, but in work, I'm, I'm much higher. Um, but I do find that that for me, it's more like, and I tell people about sort of the three week hurdle, which I know you've experienced at ultra work too, is like, you've got to make it through the third week of a productivity system before you actually know whether it's going to stick or that's also where people fall off. Um, I think that three week time horizon when it comes to the work side of things is about how long most people can push off the things that are in the way of them doing focused work before they start to creep back in. Um, so all the other people's projects and priorities, all the other things that come back in, you got about three weeks that you can push off before they'll, they'll invade you. But that tends to make about a month for a lot of, um, work-related experiments. When it comes to um, personal changes, and I know we don't really see that distinction, but I could say that developing a habit of working out, you know, that's not going to be something that you do in a month. Like you can make it the month because you can just drag that off willpower, but you don't. That's not proof that you're going to be able to do it six, eight weeks at that same level. So I think when you start thinking at that domain, you really need to have like a 90-day horizon. Um, before you can really tell if you've worked that thing into or out of your system. That tends to be what I've learned to be a good gauge for those types of things. So like you can quit pastries for a month, 
Um, especially if you're using, you know, whether or not you're using willpower, but if you have to use willpower, I'm just using pastry because Sebastian started yeah, it, yeah. right? Um, but if it's really taking you a lot, like making it to that third month and through that third month is what it's going to take for you to fully rehabituate away from that. But then you're still going to have to watch your context and the choice architecture around you because if every day you go into the office and the way that people bond at the office is by eating pastries. That's just going to be an uphill battle. You're going to have to make make a different choice architecture, meaning you're going to have to set your environment such that you don't have to choose against that all the time because you're just um, going to lose that battle eventually. So how can you create an architecture around you that promotes the choices that you most want to make and makes that easy or, to Sebastian's point, free? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I mean, this is one of the real advantages um, of being around people that are, are pretty serious and, and, and pretty committed to getting a lot out of life and performing at high levels. You know, if you're around, a, you know, middle of the road sort of person who's like solid, they like do their job. They're like, all right. They're like, they're not rude. They're not discourteous. They're just like normal, right? Totally not hating. They're like a normal, solid person. And most people are decent people, like, right? Like people are good, right? Mm-hmm. But but the default inclination with those people, if you're like, hey, I'm not drinking. Hey, I'm like waking up at 4 a.m. Hey, I'm meditating an hour each day. They're like, why? Why, why are you doing that? Right? You know, right? And like, if you're like, hey, I'm not having a pastry. I'm not having a beer. Why aren't you having a beer? Have a beer, right? You know? So when you get around people that are kind of fanatic about performance and then you get a reputation, um, including like generating some results and having some success, which if you're following good processes, you'll, you'll start having more successes, right? Once you've got a reputation of somebody that's like into succeeding and then you're around people that are like into succeeding and serious about succeeding, uh, then it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not, not drinking this month. Then if somebody sees you going out to the bar, they'll be like, wait, wait, you're going to the bar that you weren't drinking this month, right? They'll like actually get on your case to support you as opposed to get on your case to be like, come on, you can have a drink. Come on, you can have a pastry, right? So, um, I, I don't know if it's possible to be a top performer among non-top performers who don't see you as a top performer, right? You know, so like, you know, if you're among people that are like into thriving, you know, and into succeeding a lot and doing cool stuff, and then they know you as one of those type of people, then it's like all supportive all the time, right? They're never, and they might, they might say, Hey, that's, you know, is that the right design policy? You sure you should meditate for two hours in the morning? Would two one hour sessions be better? They might ask you some smart questions or suggest other things, but they're not going to be like, Oh, that's dumb. What are you doing that? You're sitting saying home, you know, like you, that, that, that goes away. And I remember, um, you know, when I was younger, right, you know, you get some social pressure from people and that's really, really hard. Um, that's really, really hard. And just over the long term, you don't, you don't need to like, you know, cut anybody out of your life or whatever, probably hopefully there's nobody really bad in your life. But if you get just gradually start to associate with people that take their craft really seriously and want to be good at what they do, take their health really seriously, take life seriously. Um, those people just get more and more supportive and you're like, yeah, this is like a great thing. I like being around these people. And then, you know, then you don't get the social pressure to go against your goals. You get them to stick with them, which is categorically different. It makes everything much easier in that it removes three or four of the biggest triggers that throw people off and adds three to four supporting elements. And it's, it's a game changer. Yeah. It's just one of those weird things that peak performers are peak performers because they're around peak performers. 
Right. Um, and there's a culture and there's a community of practice that supports that. And so when people ask me about, you know, military units or they ask me about sports units, it's like, you know, that's why you want to be in in a really elite military unit if you want to be an elite type of person. If you don't want to be elite, don't join one of those units um, because that you will grind your way, whether you like it or not, into being elite. And it's always going to be a structure. But if that's what you want to do, you got to find those teams or to use my more native language, you got to build your own success packs and stick with those packs um, and not necessarily demean other people, but just understand how important other folks that are growth oriented in ways that you want to be growth oriented are to your growth and success. Yeah. And I'll, I'll throw one thing out there. Cause you know, maybe there's some, some young people listening. I think everybody that, that listens to your show is quite committed to success, but maybe some people are young and they're like, but where do I find these people? What do I do or whatever, you know? Right. Um, so first off, you got to like get out of your house and like go to places where people are doing stuff. And if you live anywhere near a major city, there's, you know, coding meetups where people are coding. There's, there's various sports things, fitness things, like just go to some of them. And, you know, probably the easiest way to connect with top performers, unless they're like super busy, this won't work with Elon Musk, but this will work with somebody that's just like solid, great, right? Go ask them something very simple. Say, I already did some work on this space and I have one question. What should I do to do more of X? Don't say like, I'm thinking about weightlifting. What should I do? Like say, I've already gone to the gym a few times. Like, can I just run by you what I'm lifting? Does that sound correct? You know, okay, they'll say whatever. I'm doing this type of coding. What do you think I should learn next? What libraries, what frameworks, whatever. Then when the person gives you advice, you don't argue. You ask any clarifying questions if you need to, but you don't argue. Sometimes people are like, yeah, but are you sure I should learn Python? Like, don't, don't, don't argue with people <laughs> if you ask them for advice. And then just follow up with an email two, three weeks later. Do whatever they say and then follow up with an email. Hey, thank you. Uh, you gave me the advice. I took it. I learned Meteor, the JavaScript framework, or I, you know, got on seated, seated rows or whatever in lifting or whatever. Uh, I did it and it's going great. Or just tell them how it's going. Thank you. Don't ask for anything else. Just say thank you. Then wait a little while. They'll, they'll, they'll be delighted because like less than 10% of people follow up after they ask for advice. Most people don't do anything with advice. They ask just to like feel like they're doing something. And uh, then you wait a few weeks. They'll probably write back. Like they might write back. Hey, you want to grab a coffee? You want to hang out? Can I help you more? Because like it's so cool and rare. It's like it's, it's still startling for me when it happens. I'm quite pleased if I go speak at a university and somebody actually follows up with me and says they did whatever they asked about. I'm surprised when it happens, right? But either way, you wait wait about a month and then ask another very simple question over email um, and then do that too. And then you just get a reputation of somebody that like asks smart questions and then does what was advised. And very, very quickly, uh, people will be very happy to take you under their wing. Um, if you do that. And again, that doesn't work for super busy people that would have worked with me five years ago. Now I'm like crazy, crazy busy. Um, but in general, that's a great place uh, to get started. And that's that's how you win a professor over. That's how you meet people that are doing cool stuff in tech and fitness and anything. Um, you know, I would I would imagine that, you know, in a lot of areas, you could you could probably approach a, a senior officer or a NCO and just ask them for advice if you were in the military um, mm -hmm. and say, hey, you know, how do I get my fitness or my running together? do it for a couple of weeks, then just say, Hey, sir, I just want to say, thank you. I did what you said. It was great. Thank you. Nothing else. They're like, wow, that guy's great. Right. That girl's great. These, this person's great. Um, it, easiest way to go do it. You have to do it, but it's really not that hard. Cause like people look out for people that like do stuff, um, like doing stuff. There's not enough doing stuff in the world. And like people that are like doing stuff really respect people that are doing stuff and are happy to help them. 100%. Um, like people doing stuff. And there's also just that power of doing stuff over time, 
Like, you know, being that person that's been around doing something for five years um, just gives you way more credibility um, than the person that just started, even if they bust their hump, right? And so, you know, people ask me um, about the book and everything like that and, and where some of these things are coming from, like the great endorsements. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying, but it's like you do this for like 10 or 12 years and you've just been doing it long enough, you kind of – like you're the person that does stuff and people want to help out. But that's, that's what I want everyone to know to piggyback on that. Like it's always one of those, like when you're giving advice sort of wait and see, because at a certain point there's a heartbreak that happens from peak performers when they've given out so much advice and people don't take it and that you kind of get jaded about it. And then it's, it's surprisingly refreshing to see that person that actually did it. Right. It's like, Whoa, they're actually doing stuff. I don't have to give up on humanity, which is, you know, hyperbole, but still, you know, oh, you're also, not you're not joking. You're not for anybody listening that's you know that's young, you're in high school, you're in college, you're like I want to be around good people. What Charlie's saying is the truth. He's he's letting the truth slip out. Yes, it's surprisingly refreshing, direct quote, and it like refreshes your faith in humanity. It's like, wow, somebody actually did something. It really is quite rare. Um, more rare than it should be. Um, and these are like, you know, if you're going to like a coding event or an entrepreneurship event, these are already the people that show up at an event, which is already the people that like should be on it a little more. But then if you're the person that actually does stuff and follows up, you're uh, at least top 10% just on the strength of that alone. At least top 10%. Um, speaking of top 10%, this has been a really great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Um, I, wow, where did an hour go almost? Um, that was fun. Sebastian, yeah, you are the, the guest on today's show. So you get to leave our listeners with a invitation or a challenge, whichever one resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about or anything else that comes to mind, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? So I would say go set a monthly theme. Right. Go set a monthly theme for next month. And it can be as simple as, you know, figuring out one theme. And I like to actually give it a name, kind of like a mantra. Right. So I had one month I called on mission 24 seven back when I did a lot of speaking engagements at universities for the nonprofit work I did. And I would kind of after a few of those, you get tired. So I'd go goof off on the train or the airplane or the rental car between things. But I said, no, this month I'm on mission 24 seven. That means I'm going to use every little scrap of downtime. And did I actually do 24 seven? No, but did I do a heck of a lot more? Yes. So set a theme for next month, like a big overarching thing, build some supporting policies around that. If you want to see how we do it, you can go check out ultraworking.com slash monthly. You could do it our way or not. We have like a organized way to do it, but take next month, figure out what you're going to do for one month, and name it, give it a name, a concept, um, and run hard on it. And actually, if anyone does that, go ahead and shoot me an email. I get a million emails these days, but SebastianUltraworking.com, I'm pretty friendly. Um, I'll, I'll get back to your email within a few weeks. I'm leveling up my email ops. This is part of the reason I get a lot of emails because I, I actually like to engage with people. So uh, yeah, if you set a monthly policy for yourself and then run it for a month, let me know. Happy to back you up. Uh, and uh, it, it might be a game changer for you. I run 12 of these a year and three or four months out of the year, it's like epic. And the rest of the time, it's pretty good. So set a monthly theme and a monthly policy for yourself. Check it out. Um, try it out. And let me know if you do it. It goes great. All righty, Creative Giants. You heard it from Sebastian. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.